Hello, my name is Stephen Smith, the owner of 3Pi Squared, and this is the ABA Business Leaders Podcast. Before we get into the episode, I want to tell you a little bit about our membership program. 3Pi Squared has helped over 700 ABA practices start up and expand. Our membership has over 45 hours of content from experts in the fields of law, accounting, diversity and inclusion, childhood development, mindfulness, business development, HIPAA compliance, marketing and branding, billing, and more. We also have discounts on things like our 3Pi Squared handbooks, professional liability insurance, background checks, HIPAA compliant email, contacts, calendars, and cloud storage. The membership also includes 33 CEUs, live Ask Us Anything events where you can come on and ask your questions as you're going through the program. And in our app, you can also add anonymous questions and get your answers. To learn more about the membership, please go to our website, www.3pisquared.com and click on ABA Business Leaders. And now let's get to the episode. Hi, everyone. Um, Today we have with us Diana Cortese. She's a board certified behavior analyst and former special education teacher who specializes in social skills groups for kids. She believes everyone deserves to have the ability to make meaningful social connections. In 2017, after years of experience developing and facilitating social skills groups in public schools at every grade level from preschool to high school, she created her own private social skills group, South Bay Kids Connection. She has used the success of this group as a model to create the first of its kind social and play skills group professional development course called Social Skills Group for 21st Century Kids. Welcome, Diana. Thanks for coming today. Thank you for coming. Hi, thank you for having me. Okay, so (laughs) if anybody is watching right now, please post your comments, questions in the chat in Facebook. Um, and without any further ado, I am going to go and put this in presentation mode and we will get to it. So go ahead, Diana. Okay. Well, thank you so much again for having me. I'm really happy to be here. I love to talk about social skills and social skills groups. And, uh, the reason why I'm such a strong advocate for working on social skills and, um, practicing them is really because the research shows us that social skills, that social connection actually increases our happiness, our health and our longevity. So it's not just something like a a nice to have thing. It's actually a really important thing throughout our lives. And on the other hand, when we don't have that feeling of connection, when we feel lonely or we're experiencing social isolation, that causes stress on our bodies. It causes stress in our minds. And we know that that can lead to depression or anxiety or even, you know, at the extreme ends, suicide. So we want to be really prioritize these skills because also when we're talking about children with disabilities, we know that they tend to experience loneliness or exclusion on a more frequent basis than their typical peers. 
So that's why I'm such a staunch advocate for prioritizing these social skills. And I do so through social skills groups. Um, today, I'm gonna talk about four things, social skills as vital 21st century skills, the importance of teaching social skills, social skills group criteria, and social skills in the context of ableism. The first point being that social skills are 21st century skills. These are skills that we need more than ever and our kids need more than ever in this 21st century. We don't know what you know our jobs for our kids these days are gonna look at as automation takes over more of the hard skills, things are more in question. But we do know that social skills are always going to be important. And we do know from researching what companies want nowadays are people who can communicate, who can collaborate, who can think critically, um, and who have some creativity. We also know that social skills are 21st century skills because, I mean, if you think about how much are the universe for our kids has is expanded compared to when we grew up. Our kids nowadays, I'm talking kids maybe K through 12 right now, they have the whole world opened up to them. You know, we had our school, we had our neighborhood, maybe your family, maybe your church, whatever. We had a smaller uh, social network and not saying it's better or worse, but now our kids really, they, they are getting stimuli from a lot of different places, a lot of different sources. And it's, I think it's a more challenging world to navigate towards. It may be better, maybe worse, but I do think it's, it's more challenging. So these social skills, these soft skills are really what's gonna help them in this 21st century as far as their learning goes and as far as their you know, contribution when they get older as a member of society. Moving on, the importance of teaching these social skills is that I would argue they are really the most important skills to teach. So think about skills like you know, your hard skills like say math or coding or even literature or art, what have you. So you're, you're, you have these skills, but I want you to think about like, what's the, what's the first thing that you do when you find out something interesting about something that you like or something that you come across? Um, what's the first thing you do when you find something funny? What's the first thing you do when you find something that, that touches you? It's most likely to share it, right? Yeah. To share it. And, and then when you share it, what happens? you increase, you know, you enjoy that moment more. Yeah. So yeah, that, that connection, it's like, it's increasing the value of everything else in your life. So it's kind of falls flat. If you find something interesting, you kind of have to, don't you search through your brain? Like who would, who, who do I have to <laughs> right. to? You know? right. That makes perfect sense. You know, I never really thought about it in quite that like relationship with yeah. each other, because, but it does. It's like, oh, you know, maybe, I got a cute new top. I'm probably not going to go to him over yeah. here, right? I'm going to like text my girlfriend and be like, hey, check this cute top out. I've always wanted a pink shirt like that, whatever. And I'm going to get that right? from her. Yeah, totally. And I think then it's like even better. Like you feel even yeah. like, yeah, I got this pink top. Like it's pretty cool. Yeah. You and know, then you get that adds... reinforcement, like that social, yeah, absolute connection there. Yeah. Um, so I just, you know, it, it just cuts across everything. The social skills 
that connection. It just cuts across all domains in our life. I'm going to go through um, play, school, and work as we're talking about children um, starting in school, but or starting yeah in school like preschool all the way up. But so if you think about social skills in the play context, um, on the very micro level, we have discrete skills like negotiating or self-advocating or initiating and reciprocating among many others, right? As BCBAs, I think that our strong suits are being able to um, really define and work on discrete skills. I think that's a great <laughs> skill to have. I'm so, it's helped me out so much in my practice um, and how I work with kids. I think parents are always amazed, like, wow, you, you can really see all of these discrete skills and how they connect. But on a, on a macro level and a larger level, I want everybody to think about why you are teaching these discrete skills. So, okay, we know, okay, they're not negotiating or they're not sharing, they're not taking a turn. Okay, so we're gonna teach it. Why are you teaching it? And, oh, because they have to learn, they have to get along with the peers. Okay, why? So I always implore people to, to think about why and keep going back and the, the why and, and so that, because on a much larger level, just in the context of play, the why you, it really should be that we want the children to enjoy the company of their peers. Okay, that's the kind of the more abstract um, thing. We want them to in, enjoy each other um, and the discrete skills are how they're gonna get there. We want the kids to find value in cooperating with others. So they have that experience, um, hey, when I cooperate with my peers, like, like kind of how I just said, when I share this information about my cute top, like it brings more value to me. And we really, really importantly want our students to feel valued. It's not just all about sharing and taking turns. It's about them feeling good and them being able to, you know, advocate for themselves and carry that on. So in the context of play, that's sort of what we want to keep the overarching um, abstract macro level in play too. We want to always be aware of why we're teaching these discrete skills. Going on to school, now schools nowadays are thankfully doing more uh, group learning, project-based learning, certainly more than, you know, when I was a kid. But it's a complex skill and um, it's something, you know, the social skills are really going to come into play at school as well. They need to learn to work in a group. They need to be able to converse with each other. And they also need some executive functioning skills like planning and delegating their tasks, right? So again, we need to teach these so they can be successful in that school setting. On a larger level, we want to make sure, you know, why are we doing this? Why is it important that the kids are learning to work in a group in school? Well, we really, our goal, since kids spend so much time at school, it's really important that the school be associated or paired with success, right? We want those good feelings um, of feeling successful and worthy to be associated with school. School can be a really, you know, tough thing for some kids. And if you are going to the same place for six hours a day, five days a week, 180 days a year, and you don't feel good, you don't feel connected, 
that's going to be a problem that's going to you know follow you later in life. And on another broader level, what we really want is the kids to be more comfortable with a variety of peers. So they're going to be, um, you know, changing classes at one point. They're going to be working in different groups. And it's really important that they learn how to be okay and comfortable with a variety of peers. That's why you're teaching them to converse. That's why you're teaching them to plan and um, advocate for themselves. Moving on to the work environment, when they get older and have to think about employment, on a more discreet level, we need to teach them to accept feedback, to again, delegate tasks, to manage themselves, their, their feeling, their stress. Um, that's something that we all, you know, I think are striving for. And that's something that's a, a very important thing because, you know, work can be stressful and that life-work balance, we, that's a skill that needs to be developed and practiced by everyone. And on a broader level, we really want to prepare our kids to be able to adapt to environmental changes that are not in their control that often happens in the workplace. You're usually an employee and you don't have control over everything. We would like for um, our kids to be aware of their personal strengths and to be able to recognize the contribution of their coworkers as well. So we wanna keep that balance of them feeling really good about themselves and and in an accurate way, an accurate self-perception and to be able to see and value their coworkers at the same time. Moving on, social skills are really like any other skill in the sense that they need to be directly taught. So we have our educational system, which there's, you know, I have two kids in school and there's all these requirements. Um, I have a son in high school and I know every single requirement that he needs to meet and social learning is zero of them. <laughs> Yet, I just said, and if you look at any CEO list, any um, World Economic Forum list, the soft skills and the social skills is everything that's being prioritized right now for when kids get out of school. So that's why I say we need to prioritize this, especially with our kids, right? Absolutely. So I've, I just, um, you know, being a company owner for more than 10 years, um, that's one of the things that, that we have talked about from time to time is, you know, the kids coming out of college, right, that are that are looking for their first job and, you know, where we're doing interviews. That's one of the main things, especially being in like a people, working with people field, right, um, that, that we are really finding that we're really specifically looking in on that we feel like we're having to define and identify now more so than we have before. Um, and so I think that's that's such a that's such a good point to bring out that they have to be taught everyone, especially mm-hmm. our neurodiverse group that we work with. <laughs> right. I think that too, I'm sure you've heard as a business owner, and I used to do hiring when I worked at the um, in the school system as kind of a common thought is like, hey, I can train this hard skill. It's so much harder to train a work ethic or getting along with your coworkers, right? Absolutely, absolutely. If you're gonna teach math or science, you don't just sit the kids next to each other and uh, he's great at science, so just sit next to him, you know, you'll learn (laughs) it. So it, it just doesn't make any sense that we're just expecting them like go to recess 
it'll it'll work out. You'll see what they're doing. Right. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, as for <clears> most as as an introvert myself, I know that that doesn't work because it didn't work for me. <laughs> right? Like I just I never connected on that level, right? I liked being by myself and so there was no motivation to do that, right? And and right. so why would I? So during group work, were you the kid that was like hiding in the corner hoping to not have to uh, do so during group work like uh, I, I don't know like i just <laughs> I, there are lots of things about group work that i didn't like i didn't like having to work with people that didn't do any work right and so like <laughs> navigating any of that and i was also quite straightforward on what i would say and so i didn't <laughs> i didn't like have that oh uh, like how do you say something kindly right. with yeah. like that dude pick up the pace you know what i mean uh yeah. saying that kind of, i just don't yeah. have those skills and, and it i see that carry over like you know in my entire adult work life right, right. so yeah it just shows you that it really forms us yeah. right our experiences at, um as kids especially in school it really really affects us the way I think that I have found a great way to teach social skills is the benefit um, from teaching in a group format. And my specific way that I specialize is in social skills groups. And the reason why I do this is because it's a natural setting. Um, it may not be recess natural setting, but that's kind of like I look at recess as, yeah, that's the ultimate natural setting if we're talking about school age kids or, you know, lunchtime for the older ones. But where are they going? Where's a nice, safe place where they can learn these skills in a group format that is pretty natural. So, like I said, I run a social skills group and it's not, you know, it's not really like a class. I don't call it a class. It's, I call it group and my little ones call it play group and my other ones just call it by its name, you know, South Bay Kids Connection or SBKC. And they know that they come out and they know the skills that we do in SBKC. But I'm careful that I don't present it as a lesson because I do want it to be natural. It's kind of like a hangout, right? Mm -hmm. But the benefits of the group is that it, it lends you, um, it's easier to generalize your skills because they're working on it with um, different peers um, and different contexts. Uh, you got to switch up the materials and just having a group, each kid is not going to be the same every single, I mean, each kid is the same child, but each child is not going to say the same thing every single group, they're not going to react the same way. And they're going to have increased opportunities to practice their skills. So that's why I really prefer, or I really think that a group format is a really awesome way um, for kids to learn these skills, especially the kids that um, behaviorists work with, and especially if you're in a clinic or something like that, or in a school setting, this is a great intermediary or a supplement or a complement to the larger, you know, recess or whatever lunchtime thing you're doing in your school. I've done this at schools and it's great because you can do your social skills group, which is, you know, a little, usually a little smaller. And then you can see how those skills are translating when you observe them or work with them out, like I said, at lunchtime or recess or wherever at the park or whatever your more, you know, community-based um, setting right. is. So would you have um, like a specific criteria for kids that would, um, be appropriate to be to participate in the group? Yes, I do think it's really important that we do set a criteria because as much as we would, you know, a lot of people do want social skills groups um, 
we have to make sure that the group is going to benefit the child. So I always, you know, and I'm sure that a lot of business owners have an intake process. I always talk a lot to the parents before entering my group because you, like I said, the group needs to benefit the student. And if it doesn't, you run some risks that I'll talk about in a second. But you want to think about who who's going to be most successful because we always need to set our children up for success. The whole thing about socialization, it can be harder for our kids for many reasons. So we want always them to feel successful. We need to start where they are and for them to feel successful. So who would benefit most from a social skills group? Think about these few things. Um, Ask yourself, is the child able to be in close proximity to peers without physical aggression? So, you know, we want to make sure that everybody feels safe, everybody feels comfortable. And if that child is having aggression in that context, that's also you know, indicative that something about that is not sitting well with that child, right? Um, is that child able to be in a group setting without elopement? These things are flexible, but think about just logistically, if you're in a group and one child elopes, what does that mean? That means you're losing uh, an adult, a staff person that needs to go over and make sure they're safe. It means that the group is disruptive. The other kids are disruptive. And again, it also means like the aggression, something is not quite right for that student in that group, right? They're feeling anxious or they're feeling some sort of discomfort. That's why they're eloping. And um, is the child able to be in the group setting without destruction or um, anything that would put themselves or others in danger? It's not to say that these kids can't work on social skills. It's just to say that a group format may not be the best option for them. The other thing I look for is, is the child able to engage in some play activities or leisure activities with limited assistance? So when we're in group, they're not going to be play or social experts. That's why they're in group, right? Although I think group is good for everybody at any stage, but they should have some foundational skills to go on. If you're still working on very, very basic functional play um, or very, very basic exploratory play, then you probably want to hone those skills in a little bit more before you go into the group format. And the lastly, does the student have foundational communication skills? Not necessarily vocal. We know communication comes in in many forms, but is that child able to communicate their, at least their basic wants and needs? Um, If not, I would again think that improve those skills a little bit more before going into a group format. So you're going to look again for aggression, disruption, elopement. Those are sort of the things you really need to talk to the parents about and be very clear and very honest about your criteria and why group may or may not be a good fit. I think that's really important that the parents don't feel like, oh, my child's not good enough for a group. Just be clear, excuse me, as to why you have that criteria. And the whole reason why you have that criteria is because you want that student to succeed. It's going to do no one good if they're in a group that's not set up for them. So there are risks involved being in a group before they're ready. Um, So moving on, we can look at those risks. And one of them, a big one, is the risk of having a negative reputation. This I have found working with school kids that a negative reputation can form very quickly and it can be hard to lose. It can't, it's not impossible, 
but it's hard to lose. If you are having a child in your group and they are saying destroying property, the other kids obviously see that, you know, and, and not only is it telling them like, hey, should I be should I be alarmed here? Is there something wrong with this group? But they're going to think things. They may not say it, but they're going to be forming opinions about that peer who's doing that behavior. And they are going to get a perception that's less than ideal. Um, another risk is that if you have a child who is not ready, maybe they don't have those play skills or that com- basic communication skills that I referenced before, is that you're going to have a child who's going to be motored through the group. They're going to be prompted on what to do, what to say, how, you know, and it's just going to be an overprompt. And I think that's one of the huge issues in our field right now that I see that our kids get so accustomed to being prompted that they just developed this dependency that even when the adult is not giving prompts, the child is looking at the adult for like a facial nod or a facial like smile or something to indicate like, yes, that's correct. Or like, keep going. Um, I see that a lot. And it's just really, really hard to fade when it gets to that point when it's so ingrained in the kids. We want them to feel competent. Right. And that's how they're going to feel confident. So they're going to feel frustrated. If you're not being successful somewhere, you're going to feel frustrated. Right. And we are going to be delaying their social learning. So if you're in a, think about any subject that you're trying to learn, if you're in an environment that's, you know, say 20 steps ahead, you're not going to just automatically pick it up. You're just going to be losing time. I think time is just really, you know, it's really pressing for our kids. We need to be very careful about how we spend the time of our, our kids. We run the risk of them being confused. Why am I here? What's happening? You know, if they're not sure what's happening or why they're there, they can become confused. And we know confusion leads to other unwanted behaviors, right? It can be either self-esteem going lower. It can be outwardly negative behaviors. But confusion is, is never great, especially if they're not able to say why they're confused. Yeah. You don't want the other child who's having a hard time to disrupt the other group members, right? And the other kids who are maybe, you know, having some success, but it's being hampered by really a wrong decision on the BCBA's part. And lastly, but probably most importantly, is if you put a risk that we run by having kids in situations where the group is not appropriate for them, is that they are going to have a negative association with peers, so you're putting them in this group. They're not having success. If they're in this group in the first place, it's probably because they need help with peers. So now my treatment or my intervention is also not giving me success. I still feel bad about myself or, or something. Then they're just really reinforcing that, like, whenever I'm around peers, I feel negative. Right. That's, like, on the broadest scope, right? I mean, this, whenever I'm in a group environment, it doesn't feel right. Yeah. I'm not successful. Yeah. And it's like, oh man, that's that's actually on the highest level, the opposite, right? Exactly. The whole point is like peers equal value. Yes. <laughs> like and it's better mathematically. My life is better right? with you. Yeah. I am yeah. like so I am I like I am so thankful that you're that you're sharing these pieces with us because I think it, it's like so important to look at 
the group? Is the group setting appropriate yet? Do you have these prerequisite skills to be successful? And what happens <clears throat> if if you're not ready yet? And then and then a child you you know involve a child in a group. So I think these are all super important pieces to look at because I know that I've seen you know some kids either way right. Some kids are one-on-one taught for a very long time and not introduced to other peers. And then that's, I think a lot of times that's when you see that prompt dependence or that the the value, maybe you even, I don't know if you miss out on the opportunity, but like you definitely delay the opportunity of them even understanding what the value would be to have, to have that peer. And then also kind of on the flip side, like I've seen people rush kids into group too soon and then see a lot of these things. I just thank you so much for bringing this information to our listeners, because I I think they're really important things to stop and think about. But it all just comes together for this idea of like the value of of, of like connection and and like what the meat of like why we're really doing this does it really matter if you can have a turn taking conversation with somebody no i mean maybe but really being able to connect on some level and enjoy someone's company is just i don't even know what words to use it's just so meaningful and valuable yeah exactly i i think sometimes we get so bogged down with like iep goals or you know these skills we need to teach and like i said before i think that's like a superpower of bcbas but we need to also like take a step back and look at the bigger picture right and think long term of why we're doing what we're doing i always question myself why am i doing hey, this is a great me? question yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is. Um, well, I'm just curious about a couple of things. I, I'm not sure if you're going to touch on them later or not. So if so, you're going to just let me know. But um, like what kind of group size would you recommend? And even like staff to participant ratio, as well as like group size of how many individuals together in this group. I, I'm sure it, it varies a little depending on age and such. But what would you say about about that? Yeah, what I have found to be ideal for me is about, um, especially with kids younger than eight or so, I have found the ideal number of children to be around eight, maybe nine, um, with at least two staff. And that's not because that amount of staff because of behaviors. I just think it's so important to be watching the kids, like watching their faces to see how they're reacting to things, um, to have that ratio. So we're as observant as we can. When we have too many kids, it's hard to track like what they're doing and how they're reacting. Um, And it's hard to notice the patterns of of each child. When they're a bit older, I think that the staff ratio can be less. I think also because what I have found like the movement is a little bit less. So with with the younger kids, a social skills group is very much play-based, mm-hmm. right? So it's more active. You have like things like potty, you know, and you have to take like right. logistics like that, right? Like I need, I need water, I need, I need this, I need to go to the bathroom. So you also need the staff just logistically for that. So I, I do think the younger ones need more adult and the older kids like not, you know, eight, nine and, and above, I think you can do a larger group, um, depending on on your learners, but I think you can do a larger group um, with less staff. I do still think movement is really important in every group, but they just will move less just because, you know, kids biologically, the younger they are, they have more energy. But to keep it interesting, I all, I incorporate a lot of movement in all of my groups. 
So for me personally, that sweet spot, I've had larger, I've had smaller. Yeah, I think you can do like a larger group for the younger ones and you can have more staff. You might say like, oh, well, I'll just do a ratio of three to one or four to one and I'll have 12 kids and three staff. Then you just think about logistically like the sound stimulation, like the auditory stimulation and just the visual stimulation of having so much just seeing a lot of kids and seeing a lot of movement, I think that gets overwhelming. So it's not necessarily just about the ratio, it's about the group in general, because another consideration that this is what I've discovered through, you know, just talking with kids and just the whole doing this for a while, is as much as we want them to have fun and be creative and have movement, at the same time, they also need to feel calm and centered and secure. Yeah. So it's interesting. Like you have to kind of balance the two things. It's kind of like, you know, some a skill that you hone after a while. But if they feel like, yeah, then they're going to get dysregulated. And most of our students, you know, have some sort of, a lot of our students have, um, you know, some difficulty with regulating. One social skill that's really important for any kid is to be able to be like, silly laugh at a joke but then like bring it back down like okay let's let's calm down and let's do and that's actually like a really difficult skill to regulate and so the larger your group the harder that is that's a great Um, point yeah yeah you don't want too many in a in one group i found okay i know that sometimes when insurance you're confined with different things so it's harder so be creative with right. um, maybe like <laughs> with like assistants yeah. or like maybe like volunteers or something like that. If you can like just even if you can have somebody, you know, like I said, like, OK, take this person to the bathroom or whatever. I don't know. Little things like that. That So you're present for the what you really need to be present right. for. Right. right. So, OK. So another huge consideration when we're talking about social skills and social skills groups is ableism. This is the discrimination against people with disabilities on the belief that typical abilities are superior. OK, so we need to make sure that the point of our social skills group is not to say that, hey, kids with disabilities, we're going to teach you to look like you don't. We really, we can kind of go to the two frameworks, uh, uh, moving on to like an ableist framework and an inclusive framework. So some criticisms of social skills groups that I have encountered have been that the perspective and maybe the reality in some cases is that social skills groups really encourage conformity. They tend to, maybe not even outwardly, but shame the differences in kids. So it doesn't mean that they're saying like, hey, your differences are bad. But if you're constantly telling kids that they're like, this is the correct response in this situation. Mm -hmm. This is the correct thing to say. This you keep in your head. You know, that's not how I think. So are you telling me that I'm getting that message, right? You You don't even have to say it out loud, but I'm getting that message that what I'm thinking is wrong. And so therefore I'm feeling like less than. Um, Another criticism of social skills groups could be that, depending on how it's done, but if if it's done incorrectly, social skills group puts the responsibility of the child, the um, neurodiverse student, to change. Instead of having the environment be more accepting, we are saying to the, you know, this individual, you're the one who needs changing because the neurotypical experience is what we're striving for. This is the gold standard. 
And everything we do is teaching that, you know, leading up to that. These are the skills. And once you learn these skills, you are going to learn how to have the neurotypical experience. And that's the goal. So obviously, we don't want that. And I think it's very easy to do that inadvertently. And that's why I always say, ask why, ask why, you know, question yourself, self audit all the time. Mm -hmm. So what we want is an inclusive framework. We want all self-expression to be valued. You know, we want the kids to be able to feel judgment free. We don't want to say, yes, that's a correct response. You know, that's right. That's how we should react. Um, Even if you think, or even if it seems that a reaction is totally out of proportion or like really not right, have them present it in group and they can get the feedback of their peers. That's why you're in a group format, right? Not so you could say, what's the point of the group if you're telling them what's right or wrong? Then you can just do that individually. The point of the group is that you have like this natural context of peers and they will see how their reaction, you know, lands or their statement or whatever they say lands with their peers and the peers will give them that feedback if if they're older they can give it verbally if they're younger it's maybe how they act right and then you can sort of you know use that as a starting point to discuss or to you know give some feedback we really want to make sure that we are creating a culture of of kindness and i think that no one's better than the other and i think the way that we do that is when people feel secure they are more likely to be kind And when people are insecure, they are more likely to be judgmental because they're feeling judged. So if we can provide an environment that someone feels like when they go in, they can be, like I said before, calm and centered, relaxed. And I feel like I can say what I want and I'm not going to be punished for it. And they're going to just be more open to feedback. You know what I mean? They're going to be more open to it because they're not going to have that chip on their shoulder. They're not going to feel sort of guarded. So we want them to feel open. I use that word a lot because I just feel like you're able to give and take more when you feel mentally open, right? And we're just, um, we can learn better that way. Moving on, social skills are nuanced and they're context dependent. That's why they're challenging to teach because you can't open a manual and say, this is social skill A, B, C. Social skills are going to vary depending on where we are, who we're with, when we're with them, what time period you're in. In today's world, in this 21st century, well, we're going to encounter more people outside of our family. We're going to encounter people who have different beliefs and different values than us. So the goal is not to fit in because honestly, it's kind of impossible because there's so many different people and so many different opinions and cultures. We really can't, you know, quote unquote, fit in because there's no definition. There's no criteria for that. So what is the goal? The goal is connection. Connection through appreciation, through value, through, you know, respect and to feel good about ourselves and feel good about, you know, other people. So always keep in mind what your ultimate goal is. Your ultimate goal is like positive connection. And when we're talking about kids, I think we really need to concentrate on that positive peer connection. You know, hopefully most of our kids have, you know, good families and and they probably have good relationships, um, hopefully with like maybe teachers or therapists, what have you. But the peer connection is, is the hard one and the one that really needs to be prioritized. And that's why I, I formed um, my personal social skills group that I do privately 
um, after years of working in various settings, but most recently the school system, is because I saw, oh my gosh, this is what they need the most and what we're prioritizing the least. So I've been doing that for a while and I just recently created a course based on everything I've learned or am learning in that group. It's called Social Skills Groups for 21st Century Kids. And it's about designing something creative that is, like I say, heart-centered and data-driven. So we want to manage both of those things. That is just so beautiful. That just, I, I, it's just, it's just so beautiful. I just love the message that you're sharing with us today. And it's, it's a lot of, it brings a lot of good reminders. You know, I just, I just love, um, you know, asking why, asking, you know, and, and just, yeah, I'm not going to repeat your whole your whole thing, but it's just so many things just spoke to me. So many things match my values, um, three pi squared values mm-hmm. of where we stand, and then just my personal values with working with families. It's just so wonderful. I was wondering, do you have a couple of minutes for a couple of questions? I know sure. we're, we're kind of and ending. just before we go, move on, just so that uh, our members know. So if you're a member of ABA Business Leaders. Uh, you will get a discount on a Diana's course, and we will put that into the ABA Business Leaders. It is a limited t- amount of time, so I would take advantage of this, especially if you're doing social skills. And I think, you know, one thing, because at this point everyone knows that we had audio issues last time, but I think that's something that you mentioned, that it doesn't always yeah. just have to be in a clinic setting, right? Right, yeah, right, yeah, because so. I think, yeah, we talked about last time <clears throat> that, um, that in our in-home services that we would help the families get social skills groups together for the kids just like kids on the street you know maybe cousins whoever they play with on a regular basis or see let's invite them in and of course there's like when you're dealing with insurance and stuff that gets a little tricky but you know just working in their environment Mm -hmm. with their friends and their family that they see on a regular basis and like make it you know super easy to go like catch a quick basketball game at the end of the cul-de-sac with their neighbors, you know, and like building up for that type of thing. Yes, because that's the kind of thing and that's the kind of opportunities that's going to be most likely presented to them, right? So those are so important to do because they're going to be able to really learn that skill because they're going to come encounter with that that situation. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, so as far as like groupings of people, so if you do have like a social skills group, like within a clinic, is it something that you look at to match ability levels or developmental um, levels? And, and then also, do you try to bring in neurotypical um, peers or not even necessarily has to be neurotypical, but like just stagger those like skill set, like strengths and weaknesses mm-hmm. so that maybe you don't have a group of kids who are all struggling with the same issue, <laughs> you know, so that they yeah. do have some peer models there within mm. the group as right. well. I do think that's important. I think it's important for each, for them to be able to learn from each other. Yeah. If, if they're all the same, that it makes it a little bit harder because they're all working on something, you know, it's hard to get that natural model. Mm-hmm. You can model it as the adult, but then it, it's not like, great. Right. But again, that's the purpose of the group. So I try to have sort of a mix and kids are, even though I always say we're always working on the same overarching skills, their individual um, needs at that time are different. So this one is maybe working on, you know, coming out of their shell and initiating a little bit more. And this one's maybe, you know, very vocal, but needs some help with, you know, regulating or something like that. 
So I do try to do that, but you have to make sure that everybody's getting something out of it, right? It can't be just like, oh, I have like one kid who's say he's got a lot of social skills and he's the model. Well, he needs to get something out of it too, because we want that, even if they're there as a peer, um, like a mentor or a model or whatever you want to call it, we want them happy. We want them learning and, and them happy. And you want to make sure that what you're doing is age appropriate and typical. So if you're doing that, like if you're playing games that a typical kid of that age is doing, then everyone's, you know, going to benefit. You may have to, you know, um, differentiate the instruction for the, you know, intervention for some of the kids. But I, I do think that's important as a whole. And then what I do sometimes, well, a lot of times is I have the whole group, but then I will do um, things where we pair up or we'll do like a little small group of three. And then I do some strategic grouping with that too. Because to be honest too, there's some kids that don't mesh well with each other necessarily. So you just have to be careful that not that either one is is bad. They just, they're not meshing well at this time. So, um, or this one brings out the best in this kid and this one kind of doesn't bring out the best. So, you know, just be aware of that. I always think is each kid getting something out of this yeah. right yeah I like that That's as each kid getting something yeah. out of this because it's important <laughs> to have like for it to have value for everyone there yeah. yeah and I think going back to those values of why too right like why are we doing this yeah. right are, are people yeah. Yeah. are they excited to come or is this dread right yeah. and so yeah, yeah I think yeah. all of that is yeah. yeah awesome I think one of my last questions but um I'm, I'm really curious about like where does the self-advocacy piece come into play? Because I know you were talking about ableism and then the, um, the um, can't think of the other word, but like bringing the, everyone together. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us just a little bit about self-advocacy? Because it is super important that our kids, that we teach our kids, our, our clients, our, you know, people we work with to be able to no means no. say no. And that's okay, and, right? Yeah, like- yeah, for sure. I think it starts quite young. I think it starts really young that you just in the context of play that kids, you know, can say two things. If someone does something that unwanted to them, a lot of times kids will, well, they can do either nothing, they can hit back, they can tell you, but we want to make sure that they are telling that other child, I don't like that. Don't do that. No, whatever is in their repertoire, Mm -hmm. right. That they can express. But that's why I also say that you want to have some foundational Uh, communication. So you want to start from the start in the play context of like, if someone's doing something unwanted, no, tell them how you feel, you know, that's it. They don't have to do anything more than that. And then the adult can sort of, you know, intervene and and figure things out with them. But I think it's so important that we don't skip the step of having that child say how they are feeling. Right. Mm -hmm. Then also just to be able to communicate their needs and wants. So to let them have choices when you're um, in group, like let them have some decision making. You're not going to have a group, even though I have like, hey, we're going to do this, that, the other. It needs to be flexible, A, because I'm modeling flexibility and B, because I want them. It's their group. Mm -hmm. I want them to have the voice. So from the very beginning, we're working on them having a voice. I have some power in this group. I can say what I need. So we're associating like that ability to say what we need with like being comfortable with it. It's not a weird feeling when I say what I need because it happens so infrequently. It because it's like a natural frequent thing. I can say what I need. And if I need space or if I need you to not hit me or not take my toy, I can also say that. 
when they get a little bit older, you can work on it even more um, directly. One thing that I work on with the older ones is like the difference between being assertive, passive, and maybe even passive aggressive, depending on the, the level of the, you know, the child. But what does it mean to be assertive? And then we practice that. We can do it through role plays the different forms in different ways. Again, there's no one right way through role plays, which I love to do with the older ones. You can do it in like bring up situations that are likely to happen in their day, like at school or maybe a parent has told you about, and then you can role play that out and they can be in the role play. They can see the role play of another set of kids and they can give feedback to it. So just we want it to be something like not a weird thing, right? Like they're just used to saying how they feel and they're used to like working out what they want to say or how they would react to something. Yeah. What an amazing skill to that. It's such a gift to give the the people we work with. It's a good anyone, gift for anyone to anyone, have. <laughs> like myself included yeah. in Stuff that I group. I would have loved like, to learn when I was a kid, goodness, honestly. Like just know? being able to say Same. it, be assertive is a really hard skill. Like, and and to yes. feel confident that you're doing the right thing, right? Be yeah. okay with it. Yeah. That, that I I struggle with that myself. Because it so. can feel very uncomfortable. Yeah, it can so. totally feel uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So someone who's already struggling with social skills. Yeah, and, how could you, you even know, do how, that? Like, right. Where yeah. would you start? Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's that's yeah. amazing. Well, thank you for answering my questions. Is there anything that any questions that you have, Stephen? Uh, yeah, I mean, a question I get often asked about social skills in the clinic setting is like, what should I have access to? Like, what kind of toys? What kind of equipment should I have? I'm just curious if you have any uh, good ideas on that, other than having a Amazon card handy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, you don't want um, worksheets, number one, <laughs> but you want uh, your toys don't have to be the start. I definitely think for the little ones, especially if it's play based. Yeah, you definitely need some good. You need some toys in there, but you don't need to overdo it either. You want to be able to have some strategically selected toys, I would say. I, I think I have some blog posts about oh, cool. um, toys. Maybe I can send yeah, it that'd to be you. Right. Um, and how to choose toys because there are certain ones that are better than others um certain toys that lend themselves to be shared a little bit better mm. that maybe aren't complicated or confusing so for example like if you're working with little kids i'll give you a, an easy toy and a, and a more difficult toy like an easy toy that's usually always a hit are magnetiles do you know those things met the magnetiles they're shareable there's lots of pieces they click really easy you don't need like great motor skills a difficult one that's fun, but I think needs like prep is those marble races, the marble runs where you connect the mm. tubes and the thingies like, okay, so if you're going to do the marble thing, you need, I, you got to like prepare for that. Maybe put it ahead and have just a few pieces missing and they could put the end connectors, right? So think through what you're putting out first, <laughs> but things I look for for toys I look to make sure that the motor ability doesn't need to be really defined. So they're pretty easy to manipulate toys like that, easily to be shared. Like this is a toy that lends itself. I also really like those cause and effect toys that um, there's a whole bunch of them, like Pop-Up Pirate or like the, I have one, the really fun one, like it has porcupine spines and then you keep pressing and then they shoot up. And why I choose that is because it really brings kids together because they all like, oh, they look at it. And so it naturally, without me saying like, come over to play this game, 
you know, they're going to come. So you want toys that you think are going to what would draw a child's attention without you having to say, like, let's sit down and play games. It's going to take too long. (laughs) That kind of thing. Actually, I do go. Yeah, I go over this in my course as well. That's awesome. Because you do have to have some thought put into it um, for your toys. But I also think that you want to be creative with what you're doing. Like you don't necessarily need a ton of toys. You can think of um, just creative games that you're playing or even like outside games, like those classic, you know, red light, green light games like that. And just with maybe I usually use like a paddle, um, like a green and red because they just love it. And it just, it, again, it tracks them more. And for older ones, just games that lend themselves to more advanced skills like perspective taking or things like that. But I'll send you some links that I have for that. Those are all great ideas. And I assume, like, you kind of read the room, too, right? Like, if this game you bring out, like, normally it's a hit. And then it's like, nah, not with this group. And and so you you have to get creative. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Some kids really like certain games and and some kids don't. Like, I've had that um, certain games where, like, oh, everybody loves this. And then it's a different group of kids and they care less that's why i do another one of my tips is i look for games that are really short in duration because if they don't like it okay you can just put sure. it away and if they do like it you can just do it again <laughs> right 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 because that's what i was going to say then it becomes like flexibility training for the staff right, right. to be okay with yeah. putting that game away and moving on to right. the next thing yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes Okay. Yep, yep, yep. Well, thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much for coming back again to do this. I really appreciate that. And thank you again for offering that discount for the members. So, again, members, it's limited time only. So, take advantage of this. It's a great opportunity to not have to reinvent the wheel. And and you just get a social skills uh, ideas uh, without having to do it. Because I know a lot of clinics want to have social skills, but they're like, I don't even know where, where to start. start yeah. I, I have no idea. Right. right? And I think that this cool. is a great opportunity. So thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to learn more about 3Pi Squared and the products and services that we provide, please go to www.3pisquared.com. And if you enjoy our podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe or add it to your favorites. This way you won't miss any episodes. And you can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn by searching 3Pi Squared. Thank you so much for listening.